Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What do we want from comedians? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. We want them to be funny, right? But that's not all we want. We also want them to turn our outrage into laughter. We want them to look at the absurdity of the world and reflect back on it in some kind of cathartic way. We want them to punch up, to mock the powerful and embarrass the hypocrites. And then sometimes we just want to stop thinking and laugh. And that kind of comedy is just as good and just as valuable as the more serious stuff. But this question about the role of comedy is very relevant again. Comics like Joe Rogan and Dave Chappelle are constantly in the news for different reasons. And it's usually about free speech or cancel culture or wherever the red lines are supposed to be now. I'm not settling any of those debates here, but I am interested in how comics engage with the world and what they decide to make fun of and why. So I reached out to David Cross. You probably know him from his TV work. He was the star and co-creator of HBO's Mr. Show. All I'm saying is 24. That's it. That's the highest number. And of course, he famously played Tobias on the cult hit Arrested Development. Oh my God, we're having a fire sale. Oh, the burning. Oh, but he's also a longtime stand-up and one of the most distinctive voices in comedy. Do you think when Lincoln started his uh, Gettysburg Address, do you think there was somebody who was like, uh, oh, dude, just say 87. What the fuck? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's pretentious, right? Why do I have to do the math? That's from Cross's new special. It's called I'm From The Future, and it's available for streaming now on his website. I invited him onto the show to talk about the evolution of his comedy, why he says he's not a political comedian, and what he thinks about the idea of selling out. David Cross, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You've made me laugh a lot over the years, so it's very cool that you're here today. Yeah, my, my pleasure. That's, that's my job. <laughs> well, I mean, we're all sort of climbing out of the pandemic. I keep wanting to say post-pandemic, but I, I guess there's just never going to be a post-pandemic. But 
you know, you had to stop doing stand-up for a year and a half. You, I think you recorded mm-hmm. the special last November and then your tour got wrecked by COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you uh, back on the road now or is it still just kind of haywire? No, I mean, uh, as you said, it was a, it had been a year and a half, which is an eternity for a stand-up. Certainly the longest I've ever gone without getting on stage since I started in my teens. And um, I put a tour together and then fairly quickly it became apparent that that wasn't going to work. And a good chunk, you know, not all of it, maybe not even half of it, but a fair chunk of the material that I was doing, I knew I wouldn't be doing by the time I was able to get out on the road. And who knows when that would be. It wasn't going to feel fresh. It wasn't relevant. So I won't be going out on the road again until I have another brand new hour and 15 minutes. And who knows when that's going to be. Yeah, I don't think I've seen live stand up in over three years. And and that sucks. Uh, I was so disappointed. I mean, I there's few things I love more than touring. Probably that's the number one thing that I enjoy most is touring. I love it. I love going out on the road. I love going to different parts of the country, different parts of the world and getting to do my set and seeing the fans and all that. And yeah, it's truly probably the most disappointing decision I've ever had to make creatively, at least. Yeah. Well, the new special, I mean, (laughs) it definitely connected with something just sort of raw in me i mean there's there's so much insanity going on at the moment everyone is pissed off about everything and for good reasons and you seem just as pissed off as the rest of us i mean did you feel like there was a i don't know how to put it an unusual amount of rage bottled up for this one or normal amount of rage oh i'd say normal (laughs) it's always there it's just where it's going to be directed to or at what it's going to be directed towards and everything is tempered now though through being a dad, which I, you know, for most of my life wasn't. And so now I try to, not really consciously, but just subconsciously try to infuse some sort of optimism in all the anger and negativity and cynicism, because I I just have to, I have to do it for kids sake. You know, there is all that. I don't know if it's rage, it's mostly like incredulousness. You know, it's just the frustration of like, this makes no sense. And you're twisting everything to make it make sense to you. And it just doesn't on, on so many levels. Anger is, is stems from frustration, I guess. Like we could have a, we could have a great society. We could have a truly great society, but you guys keep fucking it up. That was my favorite bit, I think, from the special where you kind of pretend to be standing in front of these imaginary children, telling them what mm-hmm. the silly, trivial shit they're going to organize their whole political identities around when they're older and be outraged about. So I'm going to tell you what is going to make you that upset, where you're angry and you're yelling and you're marching in the streets and you're infringing on people's rights and everybody good? Okay. Uh, why don't we start with you, sweetheart? What's your name? Crystal? Okay. What do we got? Okay. Crystal. You are going to get very, very upset, angry, very angry, when you see the police beating up or murdering innocent people and getting away with it. That's going to make you really, really upset, okay? Okay, so who, what's your name? Adriana? Okay, Adriana? Okay, here's what's going to make you upset, Adriana. 
when you hear people speaking Spanish. You know, I guess it does what all good comedy does, which yeah. just point out the absurdity of how we spend our time and the stuff we, uh, you know, get exercised over. But that one really landed. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, you know, that's where the title of the show, I'm From the Future, comes from. And that's a good example. I don't have too many of them, but that's a good example of a bit where I had the idea, a very vague idea of doing something about people who scream at other people in a store for speaking Spanish. Like they overhear them speaking Spanish and they scream at them. And I just, I worked on that for months and I could not find the angle at all. And it just wasn't working. It sounded preachy and it just wasn't, it wasn't right. And then one day after kind of workshopping this idea in so many different ways, it occurred to me like none of these people, if they were, five years old or six years old, and you showed them that person that they were going to become, the kids would be like, no, I don't want to do that. So that's where it came from. It's like, oh, right. I'll talk to the kids as a group of kids. And some of the kids will get angry at things that make sense to little kids. And some of the things are going to make no sense to little kids. And uh, they'll be upset. And that's how I landed on that. I mean, I know you say that uh, you kind of general recipe for a show is, you know, a third is goofy, silly stuff. A third is funny, anecdotal, absurdist yep. stuff. And then a third is the political, religious, social hypocrisy, commentary stuff. I mean, maybe it's because I'm just way too online and just attuned to all the politics stuff, because that's kind of my job. It felt like mm -hmm. more of the show was pointed at that, but that could just be my own blinkered impression. Well, that I was still working on the show, so I didn't get to that third mm. scenario. So it, it is what it is. I mean, that, that special, I scrambled to put it together. I waited until the last possible day that I had before I had to cancel the tour, just hoping against hope it would somehow work out. And I think from the moment I canceled it to shooting that special, I think was like three weeks. And I didn't know anybody. I mean, I put together, I had to go find a venue, get a production company. You know, my initial first choice for an editor wasn't available and my second choice wasn't available. So it's like a friend of a friend. And, and the whole thing was, I scrambled to put together. And usually I tape what's going to be the TV special halfway through the tour. So if I'm doing, let's say, 84 shows, then around 42, I'll just pick it on the calendar and I'll go, oh, I'm going to be in Oklahoma City. I'll tape the set there because my tour, the set is always evolving. Like that set that you watched, that would have been quite different by the time I normally would have taped that four months into a tour, three months into a tour, because it would have just evolved and more things would happen and bits grow when audiences respond to them in different ways. So I didn't get a, a, a chance to do that third, third, and a third recipe this time. You know, I have to ask you, it's funny. Um, when I started thinking about this conversation, I immediately started thinking about this distinction between a political comic and a comic who talks about politics. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, Cross, of course. He's a political comic, or he's at least someone who can be both, depending on, you know, what he wants to do. And then I heard you say in another interview that, you know, <laughs> like very explicitly that you're not a political comic and i felt like a jackass a little bit but then i realized <laughs> i think we may be 
thinking about those terms differently. So, you know, I can kind of tell you why I initially thought of you as a political comedian, and then you can tell me why that's dumb, or maybe you can just... Well, it's not dumb. I I can point to different comedians that are political comedians, and the bulk of their material, like, let's say, a, more than 75% of it, deals directly with politics or cultural wedge issues, which might feel like it's political, and mine doesn't. I mean, that's just simply put, and I truly understand why sometimes it feels like more of the set is political and going back on the last three shows, you know, prior to I'm from the future. And it's just, it's weightier, you know, it's not as light and breezy as some of the other, uh, I have some really stupid dad puns, bad jokes, you know, corny things, silly impressions, absurdist stuff. And there's plenty of that stuff and anecdotal things. But when you're doing stuff about Trump or Obama or whatever it is going way back, uh, Bush, the Iraq war, it's just got more weight to it. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to mention any comics by name here because I'm just not looking to shit on anyone. I mean, there, there are certain comics who, if you took away politics, I don't even know what their routine would be. Like, I don't think of you as that. Like, you, you, you're a sketch guy and you, you have the whole acting mm-hmm. thing and you, you do a lot of absurdist stuff. And so, like, you don't fit that. But I guess I meant it initially as a compliment when I was thinking of it in my head, right? Because they're like, they're late night style comics who use politics as fodder for, you know, easy jokes but they're not really saying anything. It's just kind of mm-hmm. discardable blooper shit. And then there are comics who obviously are funny and tell jokes because that's what comics do. But there's a moral clarity behind it that makes you laugh, but also touches something deep and true. And you know they're not just laughing at hypocrisy and power. They're expressing genuine outrage over it. And I've always thought of you, I guess, in that way, even though there's a ton of you know silliness and, and all that kind of stuff in your material. You know, I I didn't take it as an insult, and I'm not even upset at being, you know, like the idea that I'm pigeonholed that way. It's just one of those things where I I feel like I just have to clarify the situation where it's like, I don't think I'm, I mean, I definitely talk about politics and I have a strong point of view, but I just, when I think of a political comedian, it's not me. You might catch me when I'm working on stuff and I'm doing a 15-minute set and the stuff I'm working on is all kind of current event political stuff. And then, yeah, I feel like a political comic. But for all my uh, past shows, whatever's out there on video or audio, it's like, no. I just think it sort of feels that way. Do you talk about politics because you feel like you you just have to because there's... (laughs) There's like a, a moral obligation to because there's just so much, you know, madness going on or not at all. Not at no. all. I, I, you know, I, I find that a little pretentious for my taste, the idea that I have a moral obligation to do this thing. And, and it also <laughs> yeah, about that. implies that I have some sort of galaxy brain that I have to share with people so that they're enlightened. <laughs> it's just, I, I mean, this is the kind of stuff I'd be saying over a few pints at a bar, you know, with friends. And, you know, when these shows develop, I start at small rooms, like 99-seat rooms in a basement in, in a club in Brooklyn. So they are my friends. They're all right there in front of me. So it's that's where this stuff kind of develops. It's just part of who I am, I suppose, you know. That's part of what I talk about, part of the, the things that annoy me or anger me. And I know there's some people who yeah, there's, there's always, 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 always. I can do something, put it out there, and a third of the people will be like, 
you didn't talk enough about politics. Do more about politics. And then a third of the people are like, enough. Uh, that's too much politics. You know, right. so right. you can't really win. Yeah, I guess it's, uh, you know, for me, and again, this is just for me, it's always been the ideological comics that don't really work for me. You know, I mean, I think you can be a funny political comedian, but I'm not sure you can be a funny ideologue. I think you stop being funny when you stop just telling the truth and it's hard to tell the truth and consistently serve an ideological audience at the same time. I mean, I don't know. Do you feel like that's off the mark? Well, I think you've hit on something, whether intentional or not. I think part of the polarization and part of the capitalization and exploitation of our audiences that you see a lot more of people who are doing exactly that. They're speaking to a consumer base yep. and and they're looking at it like that. It used to be, you know, back in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, there was that whole stigma of the comics who were just doing stand-up so that they could get on a sitcom. Like, that was a real thing. And other comics recognized it immediately. Like, oh, you don't share the love and appreciation for the art of stand-up and doing it and suffering, and you're just trying to get on a sitcom. You don't really care. And now there are people who are trying to backdoor into stand-up via other venues because, you know, then you get a podcast and that's where the money is. And you can see that it's a bit of a 180 from where it used to be. Like you see people trying to get into stand-up now for the money. And I think you get a lot of those people with a, a foot in both worlds that are using stand-up specifically to build their base, to build their you know, revenue streaming possibilities. Yeah, you know, it's one of my great memories from 18th birthday. My dad took me to see George Carlin. Oh, wow. Live. That's awesome. He was one of my great heroes. Oh, yeah. And we saw him in Biloxi, Mississippi. And, you know, he was getting this is towards the end. And, um, you know, he was not in the best shape. But you know, he was up there in the deep South, mm -hmm. shitting on religion, probably to an audience that was like 95% Christian. But the whole damn room was just laughing uncontrollably the whole time because there was a capital T kind of truth to it that just resonated, right? And, and if it's true, it's funny. And you, like, you can't help but laugh. And I just, I don't know, I always remember that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why he was always kind of like the lodestar for me when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, the, the greatest example of that that I've ever witnessed, and it may never be topped, on two different occasions, I went to see the Book of Mormon on Broadway, and that show is just brilliant. There's not—it's just a perfect show. Yeah. And both times I went, there were a number of Mormons in the audience. I talked to them prior and after the show, and they fucking loved it. They were so tickled; they loved it, and they saw the same show I did. It's all right there. I mean, they're clearly shitting all over Mormonism in a very clever, soft way. It's all very true. It was true, but it never felt mean, you know? No, it wasn't. It was yeah. It was perfect. It was the perfect example of that. I still remember that line from the show. I'm wet with salvation. That's, <laughs> I still randomly think of that and just laugh uncontrollably. David Cross has been doing stand-up for the past 25 years, from Bill Clinton to 9-11 to Donald Trump. 
How disorienting has that been? What's changed? That's coming up after a quick break. You know, I, I think a lot about how comedy has kind of changed, really as not comedy so much, but kind of the world has evolved over the last 20 years, you know, from the Bush era through Trump and now Biden. And you sort of, that's kind of the arc of your career. I guess you were really starting maybe during the Clinton years. Mm-hmm. And you put out this um, just amazing comedy album after 9-11. I think you recorded it a few months after 9-11. And it was one of the first pieces of art in those early days that, I mean, just brutally kind of unmasked and anticipated the horrors of that period and maybe the horrors that were to come. And it feels like things have just kind of gotten more absurd and more dark ever since. I mean, how weird or disorienting has it been to engage with the world as a stand-up over the course of the last couple of decades? I mean, it's both, you know, a continuation and a heightening of more of the same thing. But, you know, I look back, I haven't listened to that shut up you fucking baby in in a while quite a while but i mean that's a younger guy that's a guy who didn't know that things were going to remain awful and actually get worse and worse and worse and that's the interesting angle for me to view it as like that was a guy in his 30s who had the world in front of him and who knew what it was going to be like and i basically just moved to new york i don't know eight months prior to that after being in LA for nine years where every minute was spent like, I gotta get out of here. And all the material that has developed subsequently is just a guy uh, stand up getting older and I guess the outrage exponentially grows because nothing's gotten better, it's only gotten worse. But as I said earlier, I've got to filter things through a bit of ultimate optimism. Yeah because of my daughter and her friends. And I'm around kids a lot more now. I mean, I wasn't around yeah. kids a lot, certainly not back then. And it's interesting because I'm I'm just a different person. I'm the same stand-up, but my experiences are different. My world is different. I always say that we almost certainly radically underestimate how dumb and bad the world has always been. So yeah. You try to keep yeah. a little perspective, but man, I don't know. Seems really, <laughs> seems really dumb and bad these days, but it could be worse. It could be worse. Well, I'll tell you something that I've just experienced for the first time in the last uh, 72 hours. There's, I won't go into the whole backstory, but do you know the app or the site next door? Uh, you can get on and it's for people in a community and you could discuss like, oh, this is happening over here and be careful. There's a package thief or, hey, did you guys see at the farmer's market this thing or whatever? I've heard of it. Yeah. So there is a controversy near my neighborhood and I (laughs) am on there with a different name because it's, you know, I live here and I, I just put a different name down there and I have been trolling people and I've never done it. And it's addictive and it's a powerful feeling. And, you know, I haven't been mean at all, but I've been snarky. And, you know, the the same thing I would say as myself and the same comments, but the people I'm dealing with are just insufferable 
liberal kind of reactionary, thoughtless kind of liberal mindset. And I can see now better than I could before, like all these people who are just awful, mean, sour, just unpleasant, nasty people, when you give them anonymity, I mean, it's sad, but it's true. I think the people that were grumbling to themselves as they walked from the bus to their house in the rain after a shitty day at the job and no real outlet, just yelling at the TV, now can really make themselves feel better by hurting other people in a very true, real way that is visceral for them. And it's sad, it's tragic, but that's what social media and the internet has given us is to make all these shitty people. It just goes to your point that, oh, the world was always a bad place. There were always these people there, and there were. But now they have this thing that makes them feel better. There are people that just delight when they have tormented somebody to suicide. There are teenagers that, I mean, will kill themselves and they'll be like, yeah, all right, I won, I won. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with now, unfortunately. But yes, I think those people were always there and the world was a awful place. And, you know, the rich and the connected always exploited labor and always exploited the working class and always will and have new means at their disposal to actually get people who they exploit to prop them up as heroes. <laughs> um, I mean, the fact that Elon Musk is celebrated as this hero is just insane, or Jeff Bezos. I mean, just by the people, the very people they exploit. That's always happened. It just now you, you can see it more starkly, you know? Look, I don't want you to give yourself away or anything, but can you give me an example of the trolling? I, I can't. I, I'm not going to because then you could, <sighs> you'll know, believe me, you'll go on and you go, Oh, it's this guy. <laughs> That's fair. And it's I, actually, look, it's a real, it's a legit concern that I have. And it's, yeah. it's a thing that I'm trying to affect some change, positive change. And I don't want to mess that up either because it's current. It's ongoing. That's fair. Look, I, I had a duty to ask. I had to try. Yeah. Otherwise, I would tell you, because there are some pretty good snarky, I'm a, I'm a little, you know, chuffed with myself for some of those, like, that's a really good comment because they're just <laughs> these prototypical lefty kind of just thoughtless stuff. Well, you know what? I was going to ask you about this later. Let me just ask now. You're, I mean, your politics are on the left and so are mine. I mean, I'm, I'm an opinionist. People know where I'm coming from because I say it all the time. But like, this is a common complaint of where liberalism and the left has kind of gone, right? There's this, I think a lot of people chafe about the kind of spirit of seriousness and like a, a total humorlessness sure. among progressives. I mean, that's not new. That is not new. Okay. That's not new. I've done shows going back before anybody knew who I was, similar uh, material, engaging in people the same way as a stand-up or sketch. And the shows, not all the time, but if I was doing shows in a liberal enclave in San Francisco or Cambridge or wherever, I mean, yeah, you get people who will just, mostly it's hissing, which I always thought was kind of the perfect example of polite ineffectiveness. <laughs> you know, like, if I piss somebody off on the right, they're going to fucking stand up and threaten me with violence and yell or throw something. But people on the left be like, <laughs> boo, boo, hiss. You know, and it's <laughs> like, all right. But, oh, I've been getting that stuff 
since I've been doing stand-up, really. So you don't buy it that the left has become less funny, just think it's always been mostly unfunny? No, I think they've always been like that, and now we just have access to more examples of it because of social media. I mean, that, that works both ways. Yeah. On the left and the right. We can see in real time the people that we could only guess about or hear in a village voice story or whatever, like, oh, that person's humorless, clearly doesn't understand and won't even listen to reason. Is not interested in engaging in a discussion or a debate. You mentioned social media. I mean, are, are you a big social media guy? I mean, I know you're on Twitter, but is any of that stuff, the ridiculousness that you've been talking about here, is, is any of that change you or your comedy or kind of how you orient yourself on stage and in public as a result of, of all of that? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, uh, you know, any time spent on it, that's not simply utilizing it to promote something is a waste. You have to question every single source of information, every bit of information. And sometimes I'm a little lazy about that and I'll retweet something or like something and then find out an hour later, like, oh, yeah, that was bullshit. I'm like, ah, oh, God damn it. All right, <laughs> delete the tweet and whatever. But um, I try to be mindful of that, but sometimes I'm not. And I use it to let people know about things I want them to know about projects or the latest special, especially because my latest special for the first time is only available on my website. So I have to promote it myself. Everything I'm doing, I don't have any other means at my disposal. It's officialdavidcross.com. I'm from the future. You can rent it there. And, you know, my social media and, and things like this are the only way I can get that info out there. It's good for that kind of thing, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it works. But just to get on there and, like, doom scroll or get angry is just a terrible waste of time. Yeah. And, you know, the really shitty thing, and I've heard you talk about this before with social media, is that just complete collapse of context. Oh, yeah. You know, where it's just heat seeking bad faith, looking to exploit and pile on in the context doesn't matter because people don't care about understanding something. It's not the point. It's just emotional and reactive and malicious and really performative. And that's the worst part of it. Yeah. And, and this is certainly arguable, but I would say that it's the worst thing to come about of all of the little changes that we've made as a society. Just now there's no there's no desire for context. It's one thing to not have context. It's the dismissal of context that really is anti-intellectual and infuriating. And I mean, can you imagine sitting around a table and having a discussion and something comes up and a person's like, I don't care. When you have all the time to discuss it and somebody just shutting it down, going, doesn't matter that that person hadn't slept for two days or whatever the thing is. I'm just pulling this out of my ass. But uh, the fact that nobody wants to hear it is odd and it's very dismaying. Yeah. Well, you know, the context only matters if you're actually engaged in an effort to understand something. Sure. Yeah. If you're not doing that, if you're looking to perform outrage because you want to be seen being outraged because that signals to your tribe yeah. where you stand in context just it's not even an afterthought it's beside the point yeah and as you said it perfectly it's only context is important if you're actually 
engaged in a conversation. Well, you mentioned it, but I am curious, was there a reason why you decided to kind of go this route with the distribution, why you wanted to just put it on your own site and stream it yourself rather than, you know, going the Netflix route or the HBO route or whatever else? Yeah, I mean, part of it is the attraction of like, I own it, I can control it, I can do whatever I want. Uh, it'll live on my site in perpetuity. And But the single most attractive thing about it, and it goes hand in hand with why I scrambled to put the show together and tape it as soon as I could was when I did go out and before it was all cut together and everything and shopped the special round, everyone was giving me some variation of, okay, well, we don't have anything ready. We've got stuff lined up and we don't have anything until the third quarter of 2022. Netflix even said 2023. And that's just too late. So by putting it on my site, I shot it in November 7th and 8th, and it was on my site three months later. Yeah. I mean, the turnaround from shooting it, from actually like doing the taping to having everything produced and edited and colored and sound mixed and all that stuff, and then having it available was three months. And that is the most appealing thing to me. If you follow comedy, you might be tempted to think of today's climate as hostile. But is that really true? Are comedy audiences actually different nowadays? More sensitive? Too serious? I'll ask David Cross for his take on this after one last quick break. Have you noticed a shift in the audiences over the years? Yeah, they're older. Well, yeah, what, what mean, happened? They used to be like in their 20s and 30s. Now they're in their 50s. What's going on? Yeah, like uh, I just turned 40, man. So, um, <laughs> but you know, like in terms of where the where the lines are, what people will laugh at, I'm asking in part because on all the stuff about the cancel culture, I, I got to be honest, I, I find really boring at this point, mm -hmm. but you know, half the people seem to think that cancel culture is you know, like destroying comedy and the world. And the other half think it's this is a ridiculous non-problem. And I don't know, I guess I assume comics have always had to adapt with the times on some level. Do you feel like that the pace of adaptation is quicker you know, now than maybe it was when you first started? I don't think so. I mean, nobody's getting arrested. Right. You know, right. I don't know of any comedians that have actually been canceled. No, they haven't been. That's bullshit. It's. If you were to think about it in, you know, less uh, histrionic terminology, there is certainly an effect to you say something and if you don't apologize and you double down and then you triple down, then you're going to have a segment of your perhaps your fan base mixed with people who didn't care about you in the first place who are doing that kind of performative outrage or are truly outraged and they're showing their weight as consumers and, you know, the same way of going like, we're going to boycott this thing because they advertise on Tucker Carlson and I don't like what he said. Um, I mean, it's the same kind of philosophy and people have every right to do that. We live in a capitalist society and that's how it works. So people aren't getting canceled. They're either getting their tickets refunded or 
trying to shame people from going to see somebody's live show and who knows what kind of effect that'll have, probably not very much. Or if a comic is affiliated with a certain product or whatever, they'll say, I'm not going to buy that product or use that thing. Spotify, for instance. And I don't know anybody that's not able to do stand-up anymore because they said something. Obviously, there are people who have done some egregious things uh, that are have nothing to do with what they said on stage. Yeah. And people have made their feelings known about that. But as far as somebody making a joke, then yeah, you, if you're outraged by that joke, you get to say, I'm outraged by that joke. And then you have a conversation about it. And what happens, happens. But, you know, if you say something extremely homophobic or misogynist or, you know, racist, anti-Semitic that cannot be defended and there's the context doesn't matter and people go, hey, well, that person's appearing on the Apple. I don't even know. I don't watch television anymore. Um, what's on TV? Who sponsors things? Um, uh, then people get to, you know, you can boycott it. You can make a stink. But nobody's not able to do stand-up. I mean, maybe you can't sell out Madison Square Garden eight shows in a row, but you're still going to get to do stand-up. You know, it's interesting you use the phrase selling out. And I heard you say in, in another interview that there's no selling out anymore. Like, it's just not even... No. It's just not even a thing. Is that related at all to the, like, the marketplace dynamics you're talking about here? I mean, not really. I think, I mean, you could argue that going on Netflix is selling out. You know, somebody can. I, I wouldn't, but I'm sure there's somebody who does. You know, I don't know. It's such a different, and I'm showing my age here, but I do remember very vividly, distinctly what selling out was in that conversation and the dismay that so many people had when, you know, revolution was used to sell sneakers. And it wasn't, you know, it was, as people like to say, a slippery slope, but it was very slippery. And the acceleration rate to no selling out was quick and fast. Yeah. And, th and now you're like, good, I'm glad this genius indie rock singer-songwriter who wouldn't make that much money, I'm glad they're going to get half a million bucks yeah. because the Ford F-250 is now using their... <laughs> song to sell trucks yeah who gives a shit good i'm glad you got you know go enjoy it you've worked really hard and yeah but there was a time when that was just verboten yeah you know i always felt like people are a little too judgy when it comes to that it's hard for me to begrudge someone who's trying to make a living you know it depends on the product i suppose like there are lines for sure I, like there is a line and i want to be clear about yeah. that but I, I do think people are, are really quick to kind of snark from the peanut gallery but who have never been in anything like a comparable position you know yeah for sure unless it's those capital one ads i don't get that i mean, I mean they're all extremely wealthy people yeah and you're like how much what and is capital one really that great and why and okay all right those are the ones that I'm like, what? Yeah, Matt Damon hawking the crypto.com thing's a little weird. Uh, oh, to awesome. Me. But hey, yeah. you know, good, good stuff. Seems like he's done well enough that he doesn't necessarily need that to, you know, like feed his family. But look, here I am being judgy after I just complained about people being judgy. And, and it's a scam, though, right? Yeah. Crypt well, crypto coin is uh, <laughs> that's a, cryptocurrency, rather, is no, it's a scam. That's a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I want to I listen to that episode. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have you back on for that. You know, I know there has been a lot of noise about comics and their role, or their responsibilities. You saw some of this with like, you know, Joe Rogan is just, he's in the news every other week, it seems. Um, and there were a lot of people chiming in on that. I'm not asking you to do that, but like, mm -hmm. 
you know, it did kick up a lot of commentary about what the responsibilities of comics are, what their roles are. I mean, do you think a lot of people just misunderstand? Well, but Joe Rogan is not, he, he's not performing under the guise of comic. He's a yeah. podcaster. I mean, that's different. There's different sets of responsibilities. No one's getting their news from a stand-up comedian. Well, they better not be, who's touring. Uh, so there's a different set of responsibilities. Your Your responsibilities kind of start and end with being funny and entertaining yeah. and you know there's a gray area in the middle but that's where it starts and finishes you got to be funny joe rogan is not you know his podcast isn't billing itself as the funniest three hours of misinformation you know <laughs> available <laughs> um and uh it's interesting joe rogan and now russell brand is kind of going the same route and it makes perfect sense as a career trajectory it makes total sense and i think those people have Clearly, they have more of a responsibility because, and this is debatable, but once you get to the point where your information is suspect, suspect meaning let's figure out the sources, let's figure this out, could be right, could be wrong, but it is suspect to begin with. And what you're saying is directly responsible for killing people, then there's a different responsibility. Yeah. If the information you're putting out there, uh, you're not fully vetting all of the, the sources and the material itself, and that material is, again, directly responsible for creating orphans and widows and widowers, then yeah, I think you have a responsibility that a stand-up comic might not. I've also heard you say that the birth of your daughter, and you, you kind of alluded to this, changed how you i don't know if it changed how you thought about comedy or how you thought about your comedy but maybe that it changed um, how you thought about the world maybe you know your responsibilities in it well yeah it's what i was saying before it's where it was easy and lazy to uh and also kind of innate <laughs> um in me to mostly be just cynical and angry not violently angry but have that anger that could go one direction in a bad direction. And now I have a responsibility and a vested interest in finding the hope and finding the joy and tempering my cynicism. Uh, and, it, and it's not hard to do. It's not hard to do. I mean, unlike 95%, if not more, of American dads, I've gotten to spend almost all of her childhood with her outside of a handful of days over the last over five years and um, I've been there for all of it. And I get to see her and talk to her and watch her develop. And when she has play dates with other kids and there's a room full of little kids, I mean, it's just joyful. It's hard, it's exhausting and it's really hard, but it's absolutely joyful. And I, there aren't too many things where I've felt like, oh, this is what I was made to do. I'm supposed to be a dad. I never felt that with stand-up. I was never like, I was born to do stand-up. I mean, I love it, and I like it, and I consider myself a good stand-up, but I've never been like, this is what I was put on this earth to do. And the one thing I feel like, oh, I I'm supposed to take care of kids. Well, hey, you're, you're still on next door constructively trolling <laughs> your, your neighbors like, for, for the greater societal good. Believe right? me, they deserve it. Trust me. Trust me, they deserve it. So you clearly still feel a... a a sense of responsibility to the world and your community. Yeah, but that's as a human uh, or as a dad, not as a stand-up. Yeah. 
Well, look, David, this has been so much fun. I've always loved your comedy. You've always made me laugh. Oh my God, Sean, are you crying? I'm I'm close. I'm trying to hold it together, but <laughs> you keep oh pointing goodness. it out. I'm going to lose my shit. <laughs> but look, it, I, honestly, it, it was such a treat to have you here. His special is called I'm from the Future, and you can stream it now at officialdavidcross.com. David Cross, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Trostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. 